Welcome to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. Continue our series on the Holy Spirit today, and I'm going to ask that you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16 today. John chapter 16, today's title, The Work of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work in our lives? If you're using our hardback uh, versions of the Bible that you'll find at the back, uh, that's page 1080, and uh, we'll keep you apprised of what page we go to from passage to passage. But today, John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. You know, I'm doing some reading this past week about uh, Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world, 29,000 feet. It's part of the Himalayan mountain range between Nepal and Tibet. Now, if you are a Colorado fan and you go to the Rockies in Colorado or Utah, uh, you'll see mountains 14,000 feet, 15,000 feet at times. If you go to Alaska, a little bit above 15,000 feet. But imagine a mountain twice as high as all those mountains at 29,000 feet. Now, in history, 6,000 people have climbed Mount Everest successfully. A few of them have died along the way, but 6,000 have climbed Mount Everest successfully. And uh, it's really quite an undertaking to to climb. It takes two months to get to the top. It's absolutely necessary that you have a guide, that you are trained, and that you not attempt to climb Mount Everest on your own. Never, never should you do it on your own. As a matter of fact, I was reading an article this last week about that, and uh, the question was asked, can an untrained person climb Mount Everest? And the answer was very strong, very bold. And it says something like this, it would be incredibly naive and stupid to even attempt to climb without training and without a guide. It would nearly guarantee your failure and litter the trail with your corpse. Don't even try it. That was a pretty strong no, I would say. Did you also know that if someone dies on their way and up Mount Everest, that they just leave the body there because it costs too much to get it back down? And it stays in that state forever and ever because it's frozen in whatever condition it lays down in. Probably too much information about Mount Everest for you today. Now, the reason I bring up Mount Everest today is because what I'm talking to you about today is about living the Christian life at the highest peak possible and the impossibility of doing it without a guide, without a helper, without the Holy Spirit. Now, salvation is not climbing a mountain. Salvation is a free gift from God. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us that free gift. But he also, in addition to cleansing us from our sin and making us have a right relationship with him, calls us to a radically higher lifestyle, above and beyond the norm. And the only way you're going to get there is with a guide, with training, with help. And that's who the Holy Spirit is. He is our helper. He is our guide. He leads us along the way. Now, with that in mind, I want you to take your Bibles and stand with me as we read John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7 through verse 15. Jesus says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, 
will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And then he says, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. We're going to talk about the empowering help of the Holy Spirit today, his work in our lives. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you illuminate this text by your Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for giving us your words. Thank you that Jesus said, your word is truth. Thank you for giving us the spirit of truth to help us as we read the words physically, you help us know spiritually, literally what they mean in our lives. Father, today, help us know we're never alone, that this high calling you've placed on our lives is given to us with the help of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Jesus has not called you to live the Christian life alone. Aren't you glad? I mean, if you really understand what it means to live the Christian life, there's no way that you or I could do that on our own, with our own power, with our own strength, with our own ideas. In fact, we're the ones that trip over everything in our way. We need a lot of help to live the life that Christ called us to. Now, here we are, just mortal human beings who were sinful, separated from God, completely estranged from who God is and what God's ways are. And the Lord saw fit to enlighten us, to turn the lights on, to help us see who Jesus is. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we receive this amazing gift of eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now he lives inside of us, helping us do what Jesus never told us we could do. I said last week, quoting a guy named Major Ian Thomas years ago who wrote about the Christ life, and he said this. He said, you can't live this Christian life by yourself. Jesus said, you can't do it on your own. I've never told you that you could, but I can do it in you, and I always told you I would. I will live the Christian life through you in the form and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So now... Once we come to faith in Christ, he gives us the Holy Spirit from Pentecost onward. That is how we receive the Holy Spirit, and now he's in us. Now, this text answers four very important questions that I'm going to walk through with you today. And these four questions will help you know exactly how the Holy Spirit will work in your life. And I trust today that he'll work in your life right now, today, right here in this room, leading you, guiding you, convicting you, opening your eyes, illuminating things to you as we read through this today. Four questions, first of all. Why is it to our advantage that Jesus goes away? Now, Jesus opens this, uh, this section of the Scripture in verse 7 by saying that very thing. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Obviously, Jesus is saying, the reason I've got to go away is because I'm going to send another one like myself. And he's going to be with you all the time. Not just from time to time, not just 
village to village and day to day. He's going to be in you and with you all of the time. I'm leaving, but I'm leaving the Holy Spirit with you. Jesus literally is saying things like this. I'm with you physically from time to time. He will be with you and in you all the time. I minister in one place at a time and then another place at a time. Sometimes you're there, sometimes you're not, but he will be in you all, all the time and everywhere. He said to them, I'm asking the Father to work on your behalf, but after I leave, you'll be asking the Father directly and he will answer you the way he answered me. Those are pretty powerful statements. It's expedient that I go away because if I don't go away, you won't have the opportunity to see the power that the Spirit of God can do and things He can lead you to in your own life. Now, I want you to know today, as we walk through this, that Jesus is leaving the planet to go back to the Father because He has finished the work of redemption. He has finished the work of the cross. Jesus died, was buried, rose again the third day. The book of Hebrews tells us that when He had purchased the security for our sins, payment for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. Now, now that's where he is today, at the right hand of the Father, having completely secured salvation for all who put their faith in his name. Jesus doesn't have to do anything else to make salvation available to you. You just have to accept the gift of eternal life. Put your faith in him. So the work of redemption is done. He'll never have to die again. He'll never have to perform another miracle. He'll never have to do anything else to please the Father. He's done everything necessary. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished, paid in full. Now that makes me happy that he has done the work of redemption. Somebody praise the Lord. He's done the work of redemption. And for him to have done that, it was expedient for him to go away now, having done the work on the earth, and let the Holy Spirit come and do the work he is called to do on this planet and in our lives. It's to his, it's to our advantage that he has gone away. It's to our advantage that he is preparing for us a place in heaven. It's to our advantage that he ever lives to intercede for us as we walk on this earth. It's to our advantage that he leaves the Holy Spirit behind to be at work in our lives. It's to our advantage. Sometimes we have a tendency to say, I wish Jesus was still here because then I could go ask him questions, but it's to our advantage that he's left because the Holy Spirit is in your heart to answer every question you have and every need you have in your life. So question number one, why was it to our advantage that Jesus go away and the answer, obviously, so that you could have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. The second question, really the big question in this text is, how will the Holy Spirit convict the world? Do you notice what it says in verse 8 and 9? Jesus goes on and talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, and he uses the word convict here. He says, and he, when he comes, will convict the world. And then he gives us three phrases that give us some definition there. But let's just pause for a moment and look at that word, convict. The word convict is an important word. It means to prove one in the wrong. It means to bring a sense of shame or guilt. Now, that's not a very popular thing to talk about today. People don't like to feel shamed, and they don't like to feel guilty, unless, of course, we are. If we are guilty, we need to be shown that we are guilty. And really, the way we come to the place of knowing that we need a Savior 
is to come to the place of knowing we need to be saved. If we come to the place of knowing we need forgiveness of sin, we have to also first come to the place of knowing we are in sin. So the conviction of the Holy Spirit brings us to the place of guilt and shame, falling short of God's standard, falling short of God's glory. Do you remember when Jesus was on the earth, he had this encounter with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And these men caught her in adultery, brought her before Jesus, and were wanting to stone her. And if you remember, Jesus knelt down and drew in the sand, and, and then he stood up, and he said to all the crowd that was gathered there, many of them with stones in their hands, he that has the first, or he that has no sin, let him cast the first stone. Famous statement, great statement. He who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And the Bible almost as in a pause, literally pause, and then slowly every one of them that held those stones walked away until there was no one left. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's what conviction looks like. Conviction looks like a person that's ready to do something until they're told, that's wrong. You can't do that. And the realization that comes over their minds and over their lives that says, that's right. I am not without sin. I can't cast a stone and slowly dropping those stones and walking away. Conviction looks like that when Jesus was on the planet. Now, conviction looks the same way today in the Holy Spirit's work in our life, except in every heart and with every person and at all times that conviction needs to take place. Not just there where the woman was caught in adultery, but in all places and the Holy Spirit is in every heart and around every person convicting us of the things that we need to be aware of. I think it's a powerful picture that conviction can happen in our lives in that way. And three ways that Jesus says the Holy Spirit's conviction comes on, on people today. Let me just name those three. First of all, he says that the Holy Spirit will convict people of sin and unbelief. Do you see what it says in verse 9? concerning sin because they do not believe in me. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, he makes us realize that we have something vital missing in our lives. Before you and I come to Christ, we know there's a, a God-sized hole in our hearts. We sometimes describe it like that. We know something's missing. We know we're not right with God. We're not sure exactly how to do that. And sometimes we pursue that through religion or trying to do the right thing and and we're, we're always missing the mark on how to make ourselves right with God. The Holy Spirit convicts us that we're not right with God, that we have an inability to measure up to God's standards. It's a weighty word. It's not a great feeling to be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but it's the healthiest thing that can happen to us when we are far from God. In the New Testament, when the apostles began to preach after Pentecost, Peter stood up after the Holy Spirit had fallen on all of them, and he preached a powerful message about Jesus Christ being nailed to the cross and then rising from the grave on the third day. And those hearing the message that day, the Bible says, were convicted of sin and their unbelief. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, if you want to turn to that, it's page 1089 on the hardback version of your Bible, and, and here's what it says there. It really defines conviction. Now, this is an important definition. It says, now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. I've always been 
captured by that phrase, pierced to the heart, because I've felt it before, because I know what it feels like to be pierced to the heart with conviction. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brethren, what should we do? In other words, not only are they convicted, but they are moved to do something so that that conviction will turn into action in some kind. That's what conviction is like. It's deeper than an emotional response, deeper than a mental thought. And the King James Version, the translation is cut to the heart. And the Darby translation, which is kind of a, a variant translation, says cut to the heart with remorse and anxiety. Now, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is important in our lives because it says that God is speaking to us. By the way, when people felt that feeling, when the New Testament disciples began to preach the gospel, they tried to run the disciples out of town. In fact, in the first five verses of John 16, Jesus is warning them, this world is not going to be friendly towards you. They're not going to like you. They're not going to enjoy what you say or how you live because they'll be under conviction and they won't appreciate the conviction you're bringing into their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. They'll feel this remorse. They'll feel this anxiety. Most of us know the statement and agree with it that the truth will set you free, but first it probably will make you miserable. And that's happened to me a number of times, and I'm sure it has to you as well. It makes us uncomfortable before we realize what we need to do about it. But I want to break these ideas of conviction down for just a few moments so that we'll understand fully what it means. And, and I'm asking God today, I've asked him throughout this day, to let the conviction of the Holy Spirit happen in our hearts, however it needs to happen. The beauty of it is, I don't know what you need the conviction of the Holy Spirit to say to you, but he does and will. And the power of it is, he loves you so much that he'll say to you what you need to hear. Amen. Some things about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit makes lost men miserable. Sometimes it makes them angry, makes them mad. Sometimes they rage and lash out at the messengers. When I was in seminary many years ago, I worked at Fort Worth, uh, and I worked for a builder, and our job, my job was to learn from this head builder, head carpenter, uh, and our job was to renovate old houses, turn the century kinds of homes in Fort Worth. And I learned a lot from this carpenter, but one thing I also learned is he was an unbeliever. He hated the fact that I was going to be a pastor and I was in seminary. And he, he never ceased to let me know how displeased he was that I followed Jesus, that, that I knew something about the Bible. And uh, he just assumed that I didn't like him, didn't care for him and so forth. And every day I dealt with this guy. I mean, this has got to be one of the most miserable people I've ever known on the planet. And every day he tried to uh, cut down Jesus and mock Jesus. And I can remember him saying, you only want to be a carpenter because Jesus, your idol, was a carpenter. And day in and day out, I dealt with that. And the truth is, this guy, whose name was also John, was just really lost and really under conviction. And he didn't like the fact that somebody was actually happy in Jesus that was around him. And he didn't like the fact that I could just handle all he was dishing out and still not retaliate in some way. And at some point, uh, I got another job, and, and when I gave notice to him, I said, John, you know, it's been a real joy working with you these last couple of years. <laughs> and I said, however, I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with the fact that Jesus still loves you no matter what. Amen. I learned really early on 
that the conviction of the Holy Spirit sometimes makes lost men miserable, unhappy, lashing out. Sometimes people are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they learn to handle it. That's an even scarier place to be. What they learn to do is to shut off that conviction, that weightiness for sin. They come to the place where they say, I don't care at all. It doesn't make me angry, but I don't care at all. At some point, they become so desensitized to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You realize it's going to take quite a miracle for them to ever turn to Christ. Sometimes conviction makes people want to avoid the truth. They don't want to hear about the message of the Bible. They don't want to talk to anybody that does believe in the Bible. They don't really want to be around you if you're going to have some kind of a testimony or share with them about what God is doing in your life. Sometimes they don't want to hear about it. Now, conviction also comes to the believer. Even though this portion of Scripture talks about convicting us of sin and unbelief, conviction makes believers restless. Have you ever done something you knew you shouldn't be doing and you continue to do it? And after a while, you feel that same cutting to the heart, that same conviction that says you're in the wrong. You need to come back to Christ. You need to resurrender that area of your life, whatever it may be. That tug on your heart that says you're grieving him. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't know what that feels like, if you're in a relationship with someone, a friendship, and have you ever had one of those moments where You've said something to your friends you should never say. And immediately you feel that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. I just did something wrong. If you've ever been married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I've said something wrong. I've done something wrong. All of a sudden, my heart begins to twist. My stomach begins to get into knots because I have done something wrong. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is much like that. It's not just a physical thing. It's a cutting to the heart that says, I have wandered away from Christ. I love the conviction of the Holy Spirit as painful as it is for believers because it says to us, we're wandering and someone notices and that someone calls us back. In my reading about climbing Mount Everest, and don't worry, I will never try to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> New Year's resolution every year is not run a marathon. I've kept that resolution every year for the last 15 years. I will make another one never to climb Mount Everest. But those who climb Mount Everest realize that at certain points in that climb upward, the climb is a little less sure face and a little more steep incline and very icy. At those points, a rope is fixed upon uh, pylons that are driven into the ground. And that rope is attached to the harness of the climber. And it's given enough leeway where you have a little room to wander along the path, but not too much room. And if someone slips, that harness with that rope attached to the fixed rope will tug you and let you know you're wandering off the path. You're not going where you're supposed to go and go. And in fact, you're going to a steeper incline and you may go over if you don't pull yourself back. That tug of that rope for that climber is a life-giving feeling because it says, here's where the safe place is and I'm now not in that safe place. I need to make my way back there. That's what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is like for believers in Jesus Christ. The tug on the heart that says, you're wrong here. You're taking a wrong direction here. I'm calling you back to my way 
for your life. And you ought to be grateful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. I believe that a true believer in Jesus will be miserable if they are out of the will of God because the Holy Spirit will never leave you alone if you're out of the will of God. And I thank God for that. I thank God for the taps on the shoulder. I thank God for the tugs of the heart, for the, for the cutting of the heart when you know you're doing something wrong. And let me just tell you something today. The wisest, best, most peaceful way to deal with that is simply turn back to Christ and come back to Him as fast as you possibly can. That's the only place for peace with God is in alignment with Him. And the Holy Spirit is telling you that. Come back, come back as fast as you can. It may be today that God actually convicts someone in the room about some steps, some directions they're taking that, that is a reminder you need to come back to Christ. I love to say it like this. If you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, God is not done with you. And aren't you glad he's not done with you? So we have that conviction in our lives. He convicts the world concerning sin and unbelief. The scripture also says in verse 10, he will convict people of Jesus' righteousness. I'm only going to take a little time to talk about this because it's, it's a pretty simple concept, even though it doesn't make sense at first. Jesus was crucified like a thief between two thieves, if you remember. Pilate, when he, when he condemned Jesus to die, ultimately did it reluctantly by saying, I find no sin in him. This is not a guilty man. And when Jesus died on the cross, all that condemned him, condemned him saying that he was claiming to be God, but not acknowledging that he really was. When Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again the third day, and when he rose again the third day, he demonstrated that he was not like every other thief that died on the cross, that he was not like any other mortal man that ever died and was ever laid in a tomb, that he was not like any other religious leader that there ever was, but rather he was the righteous one who overcame death and overcame sin and stood at the right hand of God. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon all those who put Jesus to death. Actually, that was the message Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 where people said, what must we do? Yes, we put him to death. He was the righteous one. He will also convict people of judgment, the Scripture says in verse 11, where they realize they're on the wrong side of the argument. He rose from the dead. Satan, sin, and death were on their side of the picture. Jesus was on the other side, and judgment was going to come for all those that were not in Jesus Christ. See, the Holy Spirit begins to bring conviction to all of us in all situations we're in in order for us to respond. You say, well, what does that look like to respond to the Holy Spirit? There's a great text in Acts chapter 17 where Paul is preaching at Mars Hill to a group of philosophers if you'll turn to Acts chapter 17, I'll show you two verses that show three ways that people respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You'll find it on page 1110 in the hardback version of your Bible, Acts chapter 17, verse 32 and verse 34. After Paul preached, the crowd responded this way. It said, now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we will hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. I absolutely love how this text opens it up and says, here's how people respond 
when they are convicted. Now, we know externally how they respond. Sometimes people run when they're convicted by the Holy Spirit. Some somehow are overcome when they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some weep. Uh, some talk nonstop about a different subject. They want to put it out of their mind. Some actually act in faith. Uh, some change their lives on the basis of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But they all fall into one of three categories found here. Let me give you those three very simply. First of all, if you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit today, you may, first of all, resist the presence of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You may resist Him. I wouldn't advise that. That's not the thing you should do. But the Bible says in Acts 17, some sneered. They made fun. They mocked the message of the resurrection. Some sneered. Some resisted. The Bible also says a second group of people reconsidered the message. In other words, they said to Paul, we will hear you again concerning this. Often I think that takes place in a worship service or it takes place in a conversation where conviction happens. It might even happen in your quiet time or in your prayer life where you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you say, you know, this is just too hard for me to deal with right now. I'm going to go away and reconsider this a little later. And a little later you might come back. You might not come back to that, that subject, that topic. But reality, sometimes we put it off because we're not quite ready to give in to the ministry or the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some resist, some reconsider. Finally, some actually repent. Some repent. Notice what they said in Acts 17 again. Some men joined him and believed. That is, they turned, they changed. They said, no longer will I just say, I'm going to reconsider this. No longer will I just resist this. I'm going to turn, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to believe and join the message that Paul preached. Just know this, when you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you're going to respond one of those three ways. You're going to resist Him. You're going to say, I need to reconsider this. Or you're going to repent. Always, He wants us to turn to Him. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is very, very real. Third question, how will the Holy Spirit guide the church? Notice in verse 13, he goes on, he says, but he, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Listen, let me just say again, and I've said it a number of times, and the reason I've said it a number of times is because Jesus says it repeatedly. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, will guide you day in and day out. He will lead you through everything you need to be led through as a believer in Jesus Christ. Imagine climbing Mount Everest. Imagine looking at the guides that are going in front of you. Imagine looking where their feet are being placed in the snow or on that mountainside and realize that for you to survive, you have to follow someone who is your guide and you put your feet in, front, in that same place that the Holy Spirit is going before you, is putting his feet so that you might know how to walk. He is your guide in every way. And he will guide you to be doing exactly what Jesus said you should do. Everywhere in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 and John chapter 16, you have this idea of the dependence of the Holy Spirit upon the Father 
and the Father on the Son and the Son on the Holy Spirit. They are interdependent. They are harmonious. They're connected. They are indivisible. They are aligned. They are unified. What one says, the other says. And there will be no variation in that. There are times when people explain something that they experience in life as something the Holy Spirit does that flies in the face of something Jesus or the Father or the Scripture says. And I always bring them back to what did Jesus say about the work of the Holy Spirit? And always he brings us back to a, a reliance on the Word of God. There's no inconsistency in how he's going to work in your life. There is no independence in how he's going to work in your life. There's no disconnect. Jesus gives even more clarity in John 17, 17, where he says in a high priestly prayer, sanctify them, that is the believers, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Let me just say something to you very plainly. Truth is not found first in the church. It's not found in the preacher. It's not found in the tradition. It's not found in the pope. It's not found in your heart. It's not found in your feelings. It's not found in nature. It's not found in science. Truth is found in the Word of God. Did you hear me today? Truth is found in the Word of God. It's the basis for everything we believe. You must know your Bible. And the handbook, the guidebook for getting to the top of the Christian life is this book you hold in your hand, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us, illuminated day by day, week by week, so we know how to walk with Him. I thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the alignment of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in our lives. Fourth question. How will the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus? Do you notice what it says in verse 15? He will glorify me. Jesus is now talking about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, what does glorify mean? I mean, we, we use the word glorify quite a bit, don't we? We sing songs and these songs say something about glorifying God. The angels, when they came to announce Jesus' birth, said glory to God in the highest. Uh, we're taught to do all things to the glory of God. Uh, we glorify him through words of praise or through songs we sing. Uh, Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5 that you should uh, let your light so shine before men that, that, that they may see your good works and glorify my Father who is in heaven. How do we glorify? What does it mean to glorify? Let me give you some words to define that. Because the Holy Spirit is going to be glorifying Jesus through your life. And you need to know these words. Here's what glorify means. To glorify Jesus means to recognize and reveal and reflect him for who he is. Not complicated. You're a reflector of the character and the nature and the glory of Christ. You are to recognize, to know him, to get to know his character, get to know who he is, what he says, how he, how he speaks, how he lives, and what he wants to do in your life. You need to come to know him, that you recognize him. Then you reveal him, and then you reflect him day in and day out. Now, that's what the Holy Spirit is going to do for Jesus as well. I broke it down to three words that I can remember. For me to glorify Jesus and for the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus in my life, he will help me know Jesus, help me show Jesus, and help me grow like Jesus. I mean, I need the three words that simple. Can you remember those three? Know Jesus, show Jesus, and grow like Jesus, to be like Jesus.
That's what the Holy Spirit's always going to be doing in your life. I read a guy's writing, a guy, guy King, who once said that there were three ways that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. And these are the three things he said. I love the three. He said, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in these three ways. He wrote a book about Jesus. He helps believers become like Jesus. He finds a bride that is the church for Jesus. As you know, the church is just us, the called out ones. So let me give you a statement today. If you're writing notes, this is a great statement. To summarize everything that I've been talking about today, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life when you are reading his book, letting him change your life, and being the church. When you're reading his book, letting him change your life by conviction and by the transformation that comes from conviction and by being the church itself. So my question to you today is, are you letting the work of the Holy Spirit take place in your life? Are you letting him help you live the life above and beyond the life that you had before Christ and the life that everybody else has? We ought to be called to something higher as followers of Jesus Christ. Or it may be today that you're trying to live this life without the book and without the Spirit and without the church, and you just can't do that. You have to have those three in order to live the life God's called you to. You know, a number of years ago when I first started pastoring, uh, we had a revival in the church I was pastoring in Oklahoma. And uh, for some reason, the guy that was supposed to preach and speak didn't show that day. And we went into an emergency mode. We'd publicized this revival for quite a, quite, quite a while. And so there I was, uh, a week off where I didn't prepare to preach. And the guy that was didn't show up. And so I thought... It's going to be an interesting service this Sunday morning. It was in one service, and there were three people that I'd asked to come and stand up and simply tell the story of how they came to faith in Jesus and how the Holy Spirit brought them to that place. And uh, I, this was back in the days where the preacher sat in the chair on the stage, if you remember that, sat on that little chair back there and watched people's back as they talked. And as the first guy got up to speak, I realized I cannot understand a word this guy is saying because I can't read his lips in the back of his head, right? So I come down to the very front row here. And this guy's name was Steve, and Steve gave a crystal clear testimony of living his life as an adult without Christ but thinking that he was good enough just as good as all the other church members in the church that he attended. And as Steve began to talk, it became apparent that he became a believer as an adult in spite of being a really good guy. And he came to the place of realizing by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he was lost and separated from God in the middle of a service one day and realized in that piercing to the heart and that conviction that he had never believed in Christ, never trusted in Christ. And so he was telling that story. As he told that story, I was sitting on the front row, and I happened to look across the uh, congregation. It was kind of set up like this, and, and, and I happened to look at a young woman sitting next to her husband. Her husband was a young deacon in our church, and, and she had the most painful expression on her face I ever have seen anybody in church. Now, I, I see painful expressions from time to time. When I preach from time to time, I want you to know sometimes some of you have painful expressions on your face, but this woman was in pain. And I mean, she was seriously hurting, and it wasn't physical pain, it was spiritual pain. And I wasn't surprised that by the time the service ended, we gave an invitation, and she jumped up out of her seat 
and almost ran to the front and said, I realized when Steve was talking that I'd never come to faith in Jesus. And, and I kind of knew that inside of me, but he, she said, at that moment he was talking, the Holy Spirit told me, that's right, you have never put your faith in me. She said it was as crystal clear as a bell, and I give my life to Jesus today. What a powerful picture of how the Holy Spirit convicts people's lives. And that's how he wants to convict you. Either to come to Christ or to stay in Christ. If you've never come to Christ today, I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit may well be saying to you, you've never taken the step of faith. You're close, but you're not in. You're close to accepting me as Lord and Savior. You speak favorably of me. You read the Bible from time to time. You worship with the rest of the people. But you've never, ever taken the step of faith that puts all your trust in me. He may well be saying that today. And in just a few moments, when we close this service, I want you to talk to somebody. We have decision stations available for that. Please don't resist the Holy Spirit. Some of you in this room today are believers. You've come to faith in Jesus and, and there's portions of your life that you are sold out for Jesus. You've surrendered for Jesus, but there's also portions of your life that I don't know about, but that God does. And he's speaking to you today. And he says to you, repent. Don't resist me. Don't put this off. Repent. Get this out of your life, or I'll never be able to use you the way I could if you allowed me to fill you completely. And my encouragement to you today is don't resist him. Don't reconsider for another time. Repent. When you sense that in your life, it's not a game. It's not a show. It's not by manipulation. It's because he's in you or he's convicting you to come to him. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand. Why don't you go ahead and do that right now? And as we stand, I'm going to ask you to be as quiet as you possibly can today when we exit. Sometimes when we close in prayer, uh, we began talking, but I just really sense today I, I want you to have a moment or two of silence. It could be that you want to stay in the room and just think through what you may be sensing right now. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you in some way, that's what you need to do. It may be that you want to stop by the decision station and talk to somebody on your way out because they're equipped, they're ready to talk to you about giving your life to Christ or surrendering some aspect of your life to Him. If there's an area you haven't, I still invite you to our guest reception room afterwards. But I want you to have the opportunity to act on any conviction of the Holy Spirit that he may be exercising, any work he may be doing in your life. I want you to be grateful for it. I want you to realize it's because he's singling you out because he has an incredible purpose and plan for you, much better than your own. Would you let him have his way. Father, in Jesus' name today, I'm going to close with this prayer, and I'm going to ask you, because we're at this text, and because this text emphasizes the conviction of your Holy Spirit, and we've taken some time to talk about what that means, Father, today, that you would do the convicting work that Jesus said you would do, Holy Spirit. And I pray today that as we are convicted in this room in whatever way, that you would allow us to respond freely to you, not resisting, not reconsidering, but repenting. 
turning away from whatever, to put our everything in you. And Lord, I ask that you allow us to be bold enough, courageous enough to do it because it's you that calls us to it. Not because it was the topic of this message today, but it's because of the presence of your spirit in our lives. I thank you, Father, that you are real, that this is real, that you care, that you love us, that you call us to the highest possible life, and you will help us get there. Help us surrender to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.